All right, good morning. So good to see all of you. You guys are awake or not? Yeah, let's say good morning together. Let maybe just wave to someone. Yeah? Let's not be shy, you know, in spite of social distancing and everything like that, you know. It's good to be in God's house together this morning. Um, my name is Sebastian Fles. I'm lead pastor here at Celebration Church, Netherlands. And I'm so excited to be sharing, um, for now, the last message in the um, Covenant series. We'll, be, we'll have two more uh, messages in this series after the coming series, uh, because I've really felt like there are two important messages that we cannot uh, just deny that they're not there. Uh, one of them is on the, on the covenant with King David, and the last one is going to be on the new covenant. Everybody say, good new covenant. It's really good news to, to have the new covenant as well. So that's, that's going to be in a few weeks. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about um, the covenant at Mount Sinai, or otherwise known as the Mosaic Covenant, or the covenant with the nation of Israel. And this is, this is a really important covenant to look at, because through this covenant, a group of slaves becomes a nation. A group of slaves becomes a nation. And um, this is really found in, um, in Exodus chapter 19 through 24. So if you have a Bible with you, just uh, look it up. Exodus 19, that's where we're going to be starting out. And we're going to be busy for the next two or three hours or so. So you're going to be, you know, you're going to have a late lunch today. Um, don't worry. You know, it's actually not going to be that long, but, you know, we're going to go through it right really quickly. And I'm so glad those who are watching online are also tuning in. You're really part of this as well. We do miss you, though. We'd love to see you in this room uh, together to worship together. So in Exodus 19 through 24, and then after that, a long section follows on the proper response to a God who wants to be in covenant with us. And what is the proper response? Worship. That's the right way to respond to the Lord, which is more than just singing. There's more than, uh, to, to worship than that. And actually, worship is a recognition of Yahweh's divine kingship over his people. Because from the beginning of time, God always intended um, to be king over his people. So not a human king. Yes, God uses humans to provide leadership, but... Uh, it's actually about God being king himself, Yahweh being king himself over God's people. That's how he was supposed to lead uh, the people of Israel, but also that's how he's supposed to lead um, us as his people, as, as his church. And Deuteronomy, uh, just for the record, also has, um, has a, a section on the Mosaic Covenant in there, which is in, in chapter 5 and following. We're going to be looking at that a little later. Um, and, uh, but it's like a supplement to what you can find here in Exodus. So I just want to briefly look at the literary structure of uh, Exodus 19 through 24. It starts, uh, God starts out with the background. Like why actually is there this covenant here? And then that's in chapter 19. And then uh, there's the 10 words or the 10 commandments in chapter 20. Now, why do we say 10 words? Uh, very simple, because the Old Testament never refers to the 10 commandments as the 10 commandments. It refers to them as the 10 words. And um, actually, in the New Testament, the word commandment is used. But you can't find that in the Old Testament. So that's why I'm using this term here. Then in chapters 21 through 23, there's all these different case laws, or they're called the judgments. And we're not going to dig into those. There's a lot of detailed stuff there that you can, 
you know, enjoy on your Sunday afternoon off, obviously, if you like case laws. And then 24, chapter 24 is uh, the ceremony of covenant ratification. That's how we're going to end this, this message today and actually our time together uh, with something very similar that happened in the text here. And you'll, you'll find out what it looks like in, uh, in a couple of minutes. So um, I love how God first presents the background for the covenant, how he reminds Israel of his faithfulness uh, by leading them out of Egypt. So let's read uh, Exodus chapter 19 from verse 1, but let's first pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, your word gives life to us. It gives light to our lives. It's a lamp unto our feet, God. So open our eyes, open our ears to hear what you want to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So later on in the chapter, you see how Yahweh displays his majesty to the people of Israel with fire and smoke. It's like this big pyrotechnical festival that's, that happens here like way back. It's like fireworks that, that take place, which are supposed to instill a divine, like, like a divine uh, fear in the people of Israel, that they, they know that, 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 they're, that they have to be in awe of this, this God that they serve. And um, it's, it's a very interesting passage actually. So, so what, the, what, what Yahweh does is that he reminds his people how he led them out of slavery in Egypt and how he judged Egypt and its gods by sending 10 plagues. And I told you this before, if, you, if you're part of Celebration Church, but Egypt, just like Babylon, it stands for chaos. It stands for the broken world system, a world system that oppresses people, a world system that keeps people in bondage, a world system that, that promotes racism, that promotes um, you know, class society, that promotes hierarchy, which is something that the, world never intended, the, the Lord never intended um, to, to be here in this world. And this is the world system that the Lord will judge when Jesus returns as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that moment is coming soon, that he comes back. But here you see that, that God cuts a covenant with his people. He, 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 he starts this covenant with Israel, with the nation of Israel. And you can find it here in, in chapters 19 through 24 and then Deuteronomy. And it's based on God's love and God's care for his people. It's because he truly loves them that he does this. God proved his loyalty and love towards them because of an earlier covenant that was already in place, a covenant that he cut with Abraham and, and the other forefathers of the nation of Israel. And, 
And Felix, one of our deacons, he spoke about that last week. And if you weren't able to, to listen to that, just make sure you watch it online. Because that's a very key covenant that, that this covenant is based off of. And God was still faithful to that earlier covenant. He even gives Israel a clear reminder of that covenant before setting them free from Egypt. So here, um, Exodus 19 that we just read is, is set in the wilderness of Sinai. Uh, but if we go back a couple of steps, when they were still in Egypt, when they were still living under in the slavery of Egypt, and, and they were crying out to the Lord, you know, this is what, what happens. This is in chapter 6 of Exodus. I just want to read the first eight verses there. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. Every time when you see these small capitals uh, with, the, with the word Lord, it, it basically says in Hebrew, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. I'm the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, but by my name, the Lord, by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgments, judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. If you look at this passage, it's just... There's just so many promises that God gives to Israel. And every time he gives a promise, he starts out with these two words, I will, I will do this, I will do that. That's so powerful because when you look at this, this is before the covenant was cut on Mount Sinai, it just really affirms how God is the initiator and the executor of the covenant. It's all on his part. God initiates it towards his people. In fact, there wasn't much that the Israelites could initiate at this moment because, remember, they were slaves in Egypt. They were beat down. They were, they were in no place. That they, were, they were not in a place where they could actually, you know, make any decisions of their own any, uh, at that moment. They were just, the life was pushed out of them. It was a terrible condition that they were staying in in the nation of Egypt. I believe that this is a great example of, of our life before encountering Jesus. Our lives before we, we, we've surrendered to him. We're, 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 we're living in slavery, not to Egypt, but to sin and to the world system. And God promises freedom. But he initiates the relationship to us. And the only thing that we can do is respond to it. That is what he's desiring from us, Right? So God reveals himself here as a long-term family friend. I love that. He reveals himself as the God of Abraham, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's like, well, 
I know who your grandfather was. I know who your great-grandfather was. I love them. I care for them. I was faithful to them. I, they could trust me. If, if they could trust me, you could trust me as well. I care for you, people of Israel. That's how he reveals himself. He, he isn't just some kind of God who shows up out of nowhere and leads them out of, the promise, leads them out of Egypt to the promised land. No, he, no, he's a God who actually knows his people, a God who actually cares for his people, a God who is actually the God of their forefathers, a God they could trust. And he reveals himself as the Lord. And I said it already before that every time you see those small capital letters, Lord, it actually says Yahweh, which is, which is not like some title as Lord. It is actually God's personal name. It's God's covenant name. He's a God who wants to be on a first name basis with his people. He's a God who wants to be close to his people, who, who actually loves his people so much that he gives them their first, his first name, which is very different than all the other gods and deities in, in the ancient Near East that didn't want their name to be known to the people because otherwise the people could actually, you know, uh, manipulate them into doing things f for them. This God was not afraid of that. This Yahweh is truly committed to his people that he lets them know their name. And the same God who revealed himself as a long-term family friend to his people let's, wants you to know that he's your heavenly father, that he cares for you, that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he's not only the God of Jesus, but that Jesus himself is God as well. And he reveals himself to you as such as your father. So God judges Egypt and its gods with 10 plagues and, and they're forced to let the Israelites go. So when a, a group of people lives in a place in slavery for 400 years, imagine what it does to a people. There's no, they don't have any self-worth anymore. If you're treated as a slave, if, if, if you don't do what your master tells you to do and you're whipped every time you don't do it, you know, your, your, your own will kind of gets destroyed. And that's how these, these, these Israelites lived in Egypt. They were like, they were beaten down by their slavery. They've been looked down on, they're being oppressed and their identity even is, is rooted in their work rather than in their relationship with Yahweh. God created mankind to be his image to be his imagers to be like him to represent him but they were there and their their identity was solely rooted in their work making bricks for all those great building projects in egypt of that of that day a group of slaves had to become become the people of god i love verse seven here i will take you as my own people and I will be your God. That's beautiful, right? Look at these Israelites. They're, they're slaves. They, they're sweaty. They're, they smell. They probably didn't get a shower for the last two weeks or something like that. Just imagine how bad it was. And God takes them and makes them his own people and becomes their God. Wow. It's amazing. But they had to be led out of their oppression. They had to experience the faithfulness and covenant loyalty 
of Yahweh. So they get to the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. Different translations kind of have different, you know, ideas about whether it's the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. Well, the Red Sea is a deep sea. The Reed Sea is very shallow. And there's actually people who try to disprove the supernatural, like the miracles in the Bible. And they say, well, it actually wasn't the Red Sea that they passed through. It was the Reed Sea they passed through. And, and of course, they could pass through the water because it was only this deep. And I'm like, amen. If God could let a whole Egyptian army drown in water this deep, then this truly is a miracle. That's even a bigger miracle than passing, than letting the Israelites pass through dry land through the reeds, for the Red Sea, right? It doesn't take anything away from, this, from the miraculous power of the Lord. It's great. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1 actually talks about this whole uh, Red Sea experience. I'm just calling it Red Sea for the purpose of, you know, ending the discussion. God uses that experience from the Israelites as a picture of baptism nowadays. And this is a powerful picture here that, that Paul presents here. Because the Israelites are being led away from the domain of evil gods that the Israelites shouldn't worship and shouldn't have anything to do with. The gods of Egypt, the gods that were already judged through those ten plagues. Now he brings them to the Red Sea. He lets them pass through dry ground. And they come out on the other side as the people of God, with Yahweh as their Lord, as their king. And so, so they leave behind that, that rule of, of those other gods, and they, they follow, they're, they're under God's domain as they're being led to the promised land. It is a switch of allegiance. They no longer belong to this world anymore. They belong to a new world where God is king, where Yahweh truly is king. Powerful. Now they come to the, mount, to the foot of Mount Sinai in the desert. In other versions of the story in the New Testament, it's also referred to sometimes as Horeb, but this is the same place. It's the mountain of the Lord. And this is where God reminds them of, this good, of his goodwill towards his people. Yeah, that was the passage we just read at the beginning of Exodus at the beginning of this message, Exodus 19. And then starting in chapter 20, God starts to lay out the terms of the covenant. He has proven to be faithful to his, to his people. And now he lays out how he wants them to express their faithfulness back to the Lord. So it's God initiating and executing, but he wants the people of God, the Israelites, to respond to that, right? That is always the pattern in the Bible here. So he wants... De he wants them to demonstrate that faithfulness to back towards him, but also towards their fellow countrymen, because they were supposed to be, you know, the new people of God. What is life supposed to look like once they get to the promised land? Here's, here's an interesting thing, because, you know, of course, we know the story in the beginning of the Bible where God creates this place, this perfect place called Eden, and then, you know, the plan kind of you know, is disrupted by, you know, the serpent in the garden and they get kicked out of the garden. But God, every time when you, like throughout the whole Bible, this is a recurring theme, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, God still has, God hasn't, hasn't, didn't let his vision die with Adam and Eve. He still wants to create Eden. He still wants to create a global Eden on this world. Look at the end of the book. I mean, 
The book of Revelation is full with images of the new Eden. But here also with Israel going to the place, this place called Canaan, is this small strip of land on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. This was supposed to be like a new Eden. This is where, this is the place where it was supposed to, where, where, where his people were supposed to live under his reign as, as their king and where they could embody what it meant to actually live as God's covenant community. But they could live as the, truly as the people of God in the new Eden here. That was the whole idea. How are they supposed to live as the people of God, as his treasured possession? And that is really what the Ten Commandments are about. They're, they actually provide like a script for the people of God to show them what it means to live as the people of God in the new Eden. I just want to zoom in on a few of those commandments or words from Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words. Just three of them, if you allow me. You know, otherwise, ten would take too much time, right? The first one, you know, is actually very interesting. There, there's a, there, we could go into a whole theological debate right now uh, about what's the first commandment. The Roman, Roman Catholics and the, and the Protestants, they actually disagree with each other on this one. Because the, the Roman Catholics say, you know, the first commandment is, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that's, that you must serve God. And then the second one is that you don't have, ima- of, that you don't have images. No, I say, I say it wrong. That's, that's, the Roman, that's the Protestant version. Sorry, I'm confusing you. So the Protestants say the first one is, Yahweh is supposed to be your God, him alone. The second one is, uh, don't have images. And the Roman Catholics, they, they see it as one commandment. They say, hey, um, only have Yahweh and don't make images as one. And that's why they don't have problems with having all this art, artwork, all these, you know, these statues and, and, you know, this beautiful art in all those Roman Catholic churches, which is one of the biggest, you know, divisions within the Christian church in the last couple hundred years uh, but um, based on solid contemporary scholarship, let me suggest that the first commandment actually is a little different than both these groups are saying. Verses, and I'm taking verses 2 through 6 as the first commandment. So it's a little longer. But they all belong together. And it basically says this. I am Yahweh, your God. You must have no other gods before me, and you must not make an image, not of Yahweh, not of all these other gods. Why no image? Because there's only one image of God, and that is his people. We're created in his image. That's why we don't make images. And the point that is being made is this. The first command calls Israel to only worship Yahweh in a sea of other options. So the first commandment is this, worship no one but Yahweh. And the image part just belongs to that. Worship no one but Yahweh. The second command is, is this, is verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, if you are from a Christian background, most likely you've been taught that this means that you're not supposed to swear and use the name Jesus, like when you're swearing, when you're, you know, saying some things that you shouldn't be saying, or, or use God in that. 
That's how most of us have been trained to, to understand this, this verse. But within the context, within the greater context in the book of Exodus, it actually gives new light to what this actually means. When you look at the grammatical context in Exodus, which is, for those of you who want to look up, if I'm, if I'm speaking the truth here, just look up uh, Exodus 28, verse 29 and thir verse 36. With that in mind, I'm not going to read it now. With that in mind, a better reading of this verse is this. You shall not bear or carry the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who bears or carries his name in vain. Now that means a little different than just cursing. Of course, cursing is not a good thing to do. Don't misunderstand me here. Please, don't start doing this. Don't say the pastor told me I could swear by the name of Jesus. No, no, no. no. We're not doing that here. But this command is about something different. It's about how we bear his name, how we image him, how we represent him in the world around us. That is what this command is about. So if I want to summarize what those first two commands are about, the first one is this, worship only Yahweh. Makes perfect sense, right? The second one is, also makes perfect sense. Represent him well. If we, if, we, if we understood this, if the church of Jesus Christ around the world start, started to understand this, that we would represent him well in the world around us, the world would look like a different place. I don't think people would be as against the church and against us sometimes as they are today. We would be super relevant, not because of you know, great music and, and, and light shows and all these other things. No, we will be relevant because we represented the king who made those, who made those people who are still far away from God. And we would represent him in a way that actually, you know, bears his name, that actually gives glory to his name. Makes sense. Third command is this one. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Wow, Sabbath. That's like a curse word in a church sometimes these days. Because, oh, it's the law. No, it's not the law. Yeah, it is, but it isn't. This is like, this is ingrained in, you know, the first two couple of chapters of the Bible, the Sabbath. And, and we're not going to switch our day of worship from Sunday to Saturday. Don't, you know, we're not even going there. But there's something about the Sabbath that is so important for us as Christian believers to also understand. And I just want to briefly dig into that because like in a couple of weeks time, when we get back from holiday, when we're rested, when we experience our Sabbath in France, I'm going to talk to you about the Sabbath. <laughs> no, just, just a few things here. The rest and the shalom that we can experience on a Sabbath, on, on a day of rest, is a foreshadowing of the eternal Sabbath rest that God created us for which we get to experience, in which we get to experience close fellowship with him. Also, you know, at the Sabbath, we invest in our relationship with the Lord and, and in the relationship with our family members or, or friends. A really cool thing about the Sabbath is this. The Sabbath makes every, everyone equal before the Lord. You know why I'm saying that? Because when somebody, you know, has a, has a Sabbath, you know, honors a Sabbath, that means that they also let the people rest who work for him or for her. So it becomes his classless day. 
So you got these people that are servants and you got these people who are bosses. They're all equal because they all have to rest on the same day. And this is like, this is like the anti-message to, um, to the hierarchy, to the oppression, to all these other things that you see in society this day where we just have to work, work, work and find our identity in that. No, on the Sabbath day, we can find our identity in Yahweh, in Jesus, and Jesus alone. And we're all equal at the foot of the cross. Black or white, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, doesn't matter. Everyone is equal on the Sabbath day. It's a beautiful celebration. You know, all these demonstrations that are happening today with, you know, Black Lives Matter and all these things. If we, if we understood this message of the Sabbath, those things wouldn't be necessary. It's all here in God's word. It's a super relevant. You also denounce the gods of production and the idea that your identity is tied up in what you do in your life or what you, you know, your profession, your work or what you do for God, there's a lot of people who find their identity in what they do for God. They're like, hey God, am I not an amazing person because I do this and this and this for you? No, God wants you to find your identity in your relationship with him, that you're created in his image, that you can rest in him, right? The rest of the commandments, the other seven, they just flow out of the, these first three. It's that easy. Not even gonna get into that. That's homework for at home, you know? That's usually what homework is for, right? It's for at home. So why is it important to have laws in place? You know, if, and we're, we get to that at the end of this series, with, within a new covenant, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. The Holy Spirit in us helps us to keep these laws. They, they won't be a burden anymore to us. We would love doing these because of the spirit of the Lord that's living in us. But why are there laws? Why, is, why are these important? I just compare it to, 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 to this illustration. So imagine in the town or in the city you live in, there's this busy street. And the local government wants to build a local, like a playground. But it's right next to this busy street. They have these political parties and they start debating, you know, what the playground needs to look like. You know, and some of them are saying, well, there need to be fences there because it's dangerous with, you know, the road there and you don't want kids to run onto the street and accidents to happen. So, so let's put fences there. And then there's this other party. And, and they say, no, 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 we need the kids to have freedom because they'll only have fun if there's full freedom. So no fences. They just need to be able to run wherever they are and they need to experience the freedom that they have. Of course, you're going to, you know, everybody's going to go against that, that one political party that says, no, 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 there shouldn't be any fences because it's just waiting for an accident to happen. And Terhoi will have another patient, right? You need fences. And that is the same thing with the Ten Commandments. They're like the fences in, in which in between, you know, life will happen within the covenant community, within Israel, ancient Israel, but also within the ecclesia, within the church today, it happens within those fences because there's safety within those fences. And that's why the law is there. It's a gift. These are, the law are the fences that God gives so that we wouldn't complicate our lives in 10 easy steps. That's, that's what you see happening all over the place. Like people just complicating their lives because they, 
Just totally forget about the Lord and totally forget about, you know, the, the boundaries that God gives. There's freedom within those boundaries, true freedom. Ten laws, ten words, ten commandments. Forty years the Israelites spent in the desert. At the beginning, you have the book of Exodus. You have the Sinai experience there. At the end, you have the, the book of Deuteronomy, the last book of the five books of Moses. And it's kind of like a sermon. And Moses kind of goes over the whole history of Israel. And in particular, you know, everything that happened, you know, and, and, and the Sinai experience. He, re, you know, he presents those 10 laws again, those 10 commandments again in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. But then there's chapter 6. And in chapter 6, um, God adds something to it. Actually, the English standard version that I'm reading, it gives this title, which is not inspired, but it's, it's a good title. It says the greatest commandment, which reminds me of something that Jesus said thousands of years later. It says this. It's a Shema. A Shema means listen. It's Hebrew for listen. This is verse 4, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, in Hebrew. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Which means, like, there's no division in God. He's the only God that they can worship. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Powerful. Those are the same words that Jesus repeated, and he added to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that. The, great, the, greatest, the greatest commandment. In the New Testament. Why did Jesus have to add that second part? Love your neighbor as yourself. Because if we do, if we keep the law from the right heart, which is what the Shema addresses, that, that we love the Lord your God, that you love the Lord your God. If your heart relationship is right with the Lord, with Yahweh, you will keep those Ten Commandments. And when you keep those Ten Commandments, the automatic thing that flows out of that is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus didn't need to add that, that, that second part to it. Why did he do it? Because of the hardness of our hearts, of the human heart. The human heart always kind of wants to do whatever's necessary to, to be right with God, to do everything, but they don't really care about our neighbor, you know. But just... This whole, this whole idea with the Ten Commandments, was, Ten Commandments was that Israel would find a way to, to live in close fellowship with God and live in close fellowship with one another, to live as the new people of the covenant, to live, as, to live in the new Eden the way God always intended it to be. That was the whole idea here. And Jesus, because of the hardness of people's hearts, had to add that second part, love your neighbor as yourself. I love how author... Carmen Joy Imes, who, by the way, has Dutch background, how she writes in her book the following. In the covenant community, which is Israel, but also the ecclesia, the church, every part of life is an expression of worship and loyalty to the God who has committed himself to these people. How they treat others reveals their heart towards God. 
the motivation behind the law keeping is way more important than the law keeping itself. The heart attitude that you and I have, our love for God is way more important than those laws because when our heart is right with God, those laws will, we will automatically want to do those laws. There's, it's not even going to be a discussion. We're not going to murder. We're not going to, you know, desire our neighbor's wife or whatever. We're not going to desire their animals, you know, who wants their neighbor's cat anyway, right? If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, following the Ten Commandments will become the easiest thing. Shema, listen. Listen to the Lord. Listen and obey. And to close off this message, there's this really interesting chapter at the end of this whole section of Mount Sinai, which is Exodus chapter 24, which is the, the ceremony of covenant ratification. In other words, this is like a celebration of the covenant. That God is, is committing himself to his people and that the people are committing themselves to the Lord. I just want you to see this. This is powerful. And this is going to lead us into a time of communion here today. And we're going to do it in a safe way. Don't worry. You know, the people are gonna, that are going to serve us, they're going to wear gloves. They're going to you know, have, have face masks on. So it's going to be a safe experience together for the first time since the lockdown. How cool is that? Not just in our homes, but here in this place. Anyway, just look at this. Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. Not verse nine. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, went up on Mount Sinai, and they saw the God of Israel. They saw, they, they saw him with their own eyes. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, they beheld God and ate and drank. That, that's, those few words, they just registered in my mind. They beheld God and they ate and drank. That is just probably one of the most powerful things in Scripture that you could find. It's like God is inviting us to his table. You know, those 70 elders, they represented the whole people of Israel. And now we as the people of God, and I hope you're going to celebrate this as home as well. We, we get to sit at the table of the Lord. We get to experience close fellowship with him. There's no more brokenness. There's no more, you know, division between us and the Lord. There's no more division between us anymore. We're one in Jesus. We're one under that great name, Yahweh. We're one under that great name, Jesus, Yeshua. Yahweh saves. He invites us to his table. Why? Because there's only one thing that God wants. It's family. We're not, we're, yes, we're servants of the Lord. But even more than that, we're sons and daughters. We're sons and daughters. Yeah, you can clap your hands for that. Come on. He invites us to his table. He did that in Exodus. And what a great foreshadowing that is of of the, 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 mar the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, but also our, our, our present day depiction of that, which is communion. And that's why we're going to have communion today, because I just felt like God wants to seal something in our hearts today through this. No more broken fellowship between God and us. No more broken fellowship between us and our neighbor. 
Yes, we can have differences of opinion. That's fine. But we're all in agreement with Jesus. We're one in, in him. So we're going to have communion today. We're going to pray. And we're going to have communion. But here's one, one more thing. Last thing I want to share with you. Today, communion is going to be a demonstration of our loyalty to, to Jesus. You know, that's what it's about. We, we basically say that we serve God and only Jesus over and against every other God, every other priority in our lives. And that's, that's number one. You know, when we have communion, in just a few minutes from now, there's two, there's two commitments we're, we're making. The first one is this, we will worship only Yahweh. And the second one is, is this, we will represent him well. We will represent him well to our family. We will represent him well to our you know, children, our classmates, our, our, our colleagues, our neighbors. You know, all these people around us, we will represent him well. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to crown him as king as we have communion together. We're going to say, Lord, you are king over my life. I worship you and worship you alone. And I'm going to make sure that people around me will see how beautiful, how loving, how kind you are to them as well. Because I'm in their lives and you're using me, you're equipping me, you're empowering me by, by your Holy Spirit to make a difference in their lives. Let's pray. Father, we come to you at this moment. We thank you for the gift of communion. Today, every, you know, everyone in this room, hopefully, we get to say these two things. I will worship Yahweh alone. I will worship Jesus alone. And I will represent you well. And God, as we have communion, Father, seal that in our hearts. Equip us, Lord, to be light in, in, in this dark world around us, Lord. That, that people will know that there is actually freedom from Egypt. There's freedom from, from the oppression that they live under, God. And that, that they get to live in freedom with you, God. Help us today, Lord. Bless us today, God, as we partake of communion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.